Problem Gambling podcast is proudly sponsored by Gamban, the simple and effective way to block access to online gambling on all your devices. If willpower slips, Gamban doesn't. Go to gamban.com to find out more. If you would like to support this podcast, as well as our frontline treatment, prevention and helpline services, please consider donating €5 Euros per month using the link in the episode description. Thank you. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Problem Gambling podcast. I'm Barry Grant, an addiction counsellor with Problem Gambling Ireland, and my co-host is Tony O'Reilly, also an addiction counsellor with Problem Gambling Ireland and co-author of the brilliant book Tony 10. Hey, Tony, how you doing? How are you, Barry? Good, thanks. Yeah, yeah. We're still uh, recording this separately, uh, so we're in separate parts of the world, not too far apart from each other. I'm in Tremor, Tony's in Waterford City, um, but because of the COVID restrictions, we started out recording this thing uh, using an online platform, and we kind of continue doing it that way. Hopefully, at some point, we'll get to a point where we can have people in a room together when we're doing it. Yeah. Uh, last week, uh, if you missed it, we had a great guest on, Matt Gaskell uh, from the UK, from the uh, NHS's uh, Northern uh, Gambling Service. Really excellent. We had a really positive reaction to that online and a lot of positive feedback on that. We had a great episode. So if you missed that one, go back and have a listen. It's really interesting stuff. He's a really compassionate, intelligent guy who understands a lot about all the various factors that feed into to a gambling problem. But today it's just me and Tony and we thought we'd look at something that is really important because roughly I'd say about half of the people who contact us through our helpline service, whether it's on the phone, emails or text messages, uh, will be family members. So I mean that's a substantial number of people and those family members, they're rarely looking for help for themselves, they're normally reaching out. Uh, because they want to try and support a loved one uh, or get help for a loved one or get information that's going to help someone in their lives who they know has a gambling problem or who they suspect has a gambling problem. So we thought we'd focus specifically on some of the issues that come up for family members and I suppose information, tips, advice, um, looking at some of the pitfalls, uh, some of the traps that people naturally, usually with the best of intentions, fall into uh, when dealing with the gambling problem of a, of a loved one or a family member. Um, so we'll be looking at four main headings. We did a family, kind of a pilot family program a few years ago in a few different locations around the country. And we were looking at four main headings within that program. The first one will be around understanding problem gambling. I'm not going to get, we're not going to get too bogged down on that today because we're into our ninth episode here. I'd strongly suggest you go back, have a listen to a couple of the episodes, maybe especially the first two. In the first one, Tony talks in great detail about his own lived experience of a gambling problem. And in the second episode, we look at some of the fundamentals for anybody starting out in recovery from a gambling problem. They give you some sort of an understanding of how a person can develop a gambling problem and how a person can start to get into recovery from a gambling problem. So we won't get too bogged down in that today, but I suppose part of that understanding uh, a gambling problem is, I suppose, understanding the treatment process, uh, which is something that a lot of people would be concerned about. 
I mean, Tony, your experience of treatment was three months of residential with Coon Wera, isn't that right? Yeah, that was my experience of it. But unfortunately, with a lot of people who contact, that's not a viable option because of the length of time. So it's about, I suppose, the treatment model. For me, the big bit that worked with it was the fact that you had um, a structure and discipline to do to complete the structure. So I suppose for early recovery, for people who can't go into treatment or who it isn't an option for them, whether it's for work or for family reasons, it's about getting that structure that was there into their lives. I think that's the first thing when I'm talking to people who present with gambling issues is to try to get some sort of structure. And um, because for so long before that, it's been totally no structure in their lives, no. Um, and it's very hard to get that because you're trying to undo habits that have been formed with gambling as part of it. So like sometimes we're asking people how many hours would they have gambled per week or per month? And a lot of times it would be nearly the equivalent of a full-time job as well as doing their own full-time job and their family. So I think it's about filling in that time in a very productive way that kind of um, keeps the gambling thoughts as much as possible uh, at bay. Uh, A lot of people that we work with say that when they do get that structure in and and they have things to concentrate on, that it does kind of help that the gambling isn't as strong. They, They are still thinking about it. They are still maybe processing kind of the experiences that they've gone through in the previous couple of weeks or months but it, it still it does really really help so that would be my experience of of the treatment that was the bit that really helped me was that structure um, and also the obviously the therapy and and what went with that as well and the feeling of being understood but I think that's the first and foremost bit that you try to get the structures and again we'll be talking about that how the partners or, or spouses or parents can help with that as well and for any family members who are listening in or considering trying to encourage a loved one to say go into residential treatment, it could be the likes of Coonwera, which is three months, it could be Asheree or the Rutland Centre, Bushy Park, which would be the kind of standard 28 day uh, program. They tend to work off a similar model, like for the most part, uh, most of the treatment centres would work off a similar model. What can family members expect? Can family members go and visit the person or their family days? What was what was it like for your family or going to see you in Coonwera? In Coonwera, there's two kind of days you can visit, uh, Saturday and Sunday for in the afternoon. But they also, once a month, they had a kind of a family day there so that they, um, they had someone speaking about their experience of addiction, their lived experience, someone who may be at the latter end of their um, of their uh treatment there like i know i done it in, in week 10 or 11 i i done one of the talks for the family days and it's a chance for the families to ask questions um and maybe you know ask questions to alleviate some of their concerns because for when they're preparing for the person to come back into their lives this kind of new person or this person who has had the experience of treatment i am um, i do know that in the rutland as far as i know that they, they do bring the family members in once a week as far as i'm, I'm i know i'm not 100 sure but I think for the likes of Coonvera, they actually can, in, like in the latter stages of the treatment as well, they can facilitate kind of group meetings with the family members as well if they're struggling around a certain part of the recovery or part of the problem that was there in the first place. They, they do bring family members in and support them as well within that. So it is a good service. It's not part of the program, but it can be done on an individual basis. And my experience of that was, I remember my mom saying that she wasn't going to go over and visit. She couldn't kind of, you know, pick herself up to go and visit because she was so hurt by it all. But I remember when she did, 
she got a certain sense. She was she came over a good few times when I was there for three months, and she did get a certain comfort from the fact that she got to understand the addiction a bit better and got to see the place. Um, so it is. It's it, they do facilitate for family members very well. I know that when in Chalkborough, where I was, where I used to work in Dublin as well, they used to have, or I'm sure they still do. They used to have a kind of um, a meeting for family members every Thursday evening, where family members would come up while the person's in treatment. And they would get a meeting and to share their experiences and they would kind of support each other through it. Because I think, as we were saying before we got in there, there's very, there seems to be very little support for family members out there. The person who's in the addiction gets all the support, but the family members are often left carrying the can as such of all the, especially with gambling and all, maybe the financial things are after happening or I know all the financial problems they're in. Um, and then even be left with trying to mind children or trying to manage the house with only one person. So it is good to kind of for the various family members to connect with each other and have that support yeah absolutely and it's great that the the various residential treatment centers acknowledge that and i suppose try to support the family members as much as humanly possible and you did kind of touch on that thing that i suppose i've worked with family members not just with uh, in cases around gambling but with other addictions in the past and naturally enough there can be a resentment from the family members that the person in treatment is off in what is perceived to be this kind of holiday camp for four weeks or 12 weeks or whatever it might be, doing meditation and having their food handed to them and all this lovely stuff. While you, the family member at home, you know, you might be dealing with money lenders, you might be dealing with kind of financial fallout, say of a gambling problem, trying to look after the kids on your own, trying to deal with all the stresses of that. So it's uh it's natural enough i think for family members to sometimes resent the person being away in in residential treatment and all the kind of wraparound supports that that person gets while they're naturally family members are struggling and suffering big time in their own way as well and you know they're dealing with the fallout of a problem that was not of their making you know um but that's residential treatment. I mean, there are community-based treatment services as well. So, I mean, obviously there's their own service at, uh, through, if you, the details are available on problemgambling.ie. Uh, there would also be Dunluwe Addiction Services. Uh, they have a free community-based uh, counseling service for people with gambling problems. Details are available there at dunluwe.net. And there's Helplink. It's a relatively new service free again for people with gambling problems uh, which is available by phone and video call uh, their website is helplink.ie so there are community-based services like that there are other addiction counselors around the country who would work with people with gambling problems if you go to the addiction counselors of ireland website there will be a list of the different counselors in uh, in your area that will be available in your area that you could contact as well and community-based treatment can work really, really well. You know, we see it all the time. Both Tony and I are, are working with people day in, day out in the community, uh, providing that type of treatment. I suppose one of the, the upsides with community-based treatment is the person is dealing with their day-to-day -day triggers in real time and having to come up with, with the support of the, of the therapists, come up with strategies for coping with those triggers in real time which of course the person has to deal with when they come out of residential treatment anyway uh 
and you're getting feedback week to week in between sessions from the person, how they coped with the, the different triggers. Uh, you know, did, did it cause them to slip? Uh, did they come up with a strategy that you hadn't discussed in therapy? Did they use the strategy that you had discussed in therapy? What other struggles are going on? And you're dealing with that in real time in, in a real world environment. So it can be very, very effective as well. Uh, and it's another option uh, for people who either can't afford residential treatment or can't take the time off uh, to do it. Tony, sorry, you wanted to come back in. Yeah, we're just going back on, on that side of the residential because a lot of times you are in that bubble and as you said, people are dealing with the fallout of it. And even on my own experience, because the news broke nationally or locally as well, like I was there protected. Like I was, it was probably three weeks from the time that the news broke till when I kind of got into Coonvera. And I remember in those three times we were running around trying to kind of, you know, I was getting assessments here and there trying to kind of, you know, I was probably working with this lister giving statements to the Gardaí and stuff like that as well. But I think when I was in there again, I was away from everything and my family were still dealing with the fallout of it very much. So like my, my wife and my, my, um, parents especially were dealing with the fall they still had to go out into the town they still had to you know people coming up to them asking them about it talking to them about it um and a lot of it was kind of um there was a lot of support there but at the same time like i was cocooned away from everything and it was difficult like to, and especially as, as, i suppose as well as treatment but also when i was in prison coming out as well like i'm cocooned away after everything you know all the rt news i'm there in a the cell while it is a difficult place to be my parents and all my family and friends were dealing with the the day-to-day as you said the the kind of the day-to-day stuff stuff with it and i think there can be um a bit of conflict then when you do come back into that space when i came out with treatment it was very surreal kind of coming out and all these some of these problems that i created had been fixed and are not fixed but were being de- dealt with and i felt um I felt a bit helpless a lot of times when I was in treatment, even you had your, your couple of minutes phone call a night and you'd be ringing and there'd be, there'd be frustration at the far end. I'd be frustrated because I'd feel helpless. That need to want to fix would come in. And when you do come out, there is an imbalance in the relationships when you do come back out because I'm after getting all this help and the family members a lot of time haven't got any support. So like, you know, there can be a little bit of confusion. You're saying resentment. Um, and that can cause conflicts as well. And, and it is very difficult to reintegrate back into it. And a lot of the times, you know, I would have heard where, you know, when I was up in Chakvira, people really struggle with that element of it, you know, like to lose their identity within the family, especially if it's um, a mom who's been in for alcohol problems that they come back out and, you know, the, the other members of the family have stepped up to mind the kids and to find that their loss of identity and that, going back into that kind of environment can be a trigger as much as walking past the pub or a bookies or is that sense of self kind of can be gone as well. Um, and there is, you know, there is conflicts, a lot of different conflicts. So it is a lot of time with community based one services, as you're saying, you're dealing with it in real time, which can really help. Um, because I know with gambling, there is a lot of financial difficulties at times and the kind of need to be dealt with with the person as well. So it is, it's difficult. Um, so like there is a lot of pluses for the treatment, a lot of pluses for the community base, and there is there is challenges with both, I suppose. But the most important part in the, of I know that I say this to family members that I work with, but also to clients that I work with is that 
need to communicate and need to try communicate in a different type of way and try to kind of work collaboratively to to kind of work through this and a lot of times that's very difficult because of the hurt and pain and and you not know, the sometimes the resentment sometimes uh, confusion trust being broken everything is kind of after being kind of damaged so it's very hard to work through a lot of it so it does take support on both sides um, I know that in our service we work with both sides which, and I especially like working with the family members because you're able to support them from both a, a theoretical point of view but also from a lived experience point of view because you're able to point out you know that when people might be slipping back into old ways and, and things to watch out for as well. Yeah and it's great that you pointed that out as well I did mention that we provide a treatment service for people with gambling problems in the community we also see family members as service users in their own right uh, we don't distinguish between family members or people with gambling problems it's whoever seeks help gets the help uh, that they need um, subject to the resources that we have available to us but that is important to note and yeah it's great i think for somebody like yourself it was a lived experience of a gambling problem to be working with family members because I suppose it gives them an insight into, okay, you can maybe touch on your own lived experience and it gives them more insight into, you know, why would a person do that? Because so for family members, quite often they're going, like, why can't you just stop gambling? And we've touched on this before. <laughs> I think Matt Gaskell was talking about it last week as well. You know, it's most people understand that it's difficult to give up cigarettes or alcohol or other drugs uh, but that there that there's that disconnect there there's that kind of lack of understanding naturally enough across the community uh, as to why a person couldn't just stop gambling just like that you know that the addictive nature of it isn't isn't well understood you know so for a person say a family member to be able to sit in a room with you and get an understanding from your lived experience of, yeah, look, this stuff is highly addictive for some people and that a person can, will behave in ways that they would never normally behave in when they're in that active addiction. And I think that's very powerful as well. I think a lot of times as well, the people who kind of family members you're talking to, the fact that you've kind of to see that you've come through, that kind of gives them a little bit of hope at the start because um, they're kind of thinking like, um it's kind of so overwhelming i think a lot of times for the family member because of the break of trust because of the the insidious nature of it and the kind of there, there is a kind of worry as we were talking earlier on it about you know is when is the next relapse going to happen when it is so i'd like to be able to explain and show that you know even with nine years recovery and to be able to talk openly and honestly about these are the things that I that have affected me, whether it be, you know, like I haven't gambled in nine years, but old behaviors have come back, old old traits have come back every now and again. And just to be able to talk about that and to show that it doesn't necessarily have to be gambling, but it's the behavior to look out for as well as as if there's betting dockets in their pockets or if there's money transactions on their account. There are things that you can look out for. Um and a lot of times it's the family members who will notice the start of the change behavior before the person. So it's like it's because they would have experienced it before. So they actually see that the person is drifting back into old ways. So it's about kind of uh, discussing that more about triggers and relapse prevention in the same way as you would discuss it with the, the client who is presenting with the problem. And it gives you a really better understanding of the whole area of, of problem gambling. 
but it also creates that communication between the two people that they may not have talked about this certain thing before. Maybe men I know aren't great at talking about feelings and emotions. So the fact that they're, if they're getting the help as well, it can really help create a really a collaborative approach to the recovery, which is what is really needed because the actions of the family member will have a ripple or knock on effect to the person and the actions of the person with the problem will have a ripple effect. So it's about kind of really kind of embracing that and kind of working through that bit as well. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned a couple of things there and just earlier you, you touched on the communication part, which is the next bit that we're going to look at. And that one of those things that comes up in the communication is let's say the person with the gambling problem is in recovery and they're going great, doing all the right things, you know, all the behavioral changes kind of working on changing any irrational beliefs that they have around gambling at attending their meetings, going for therapy, doing what they need to do. And maybe they're having a bad day, right? Which we can all have. Their mood is low. They might be stressed or depressed over normal day-to-day things that cause us to feel stressed or depressed, right? And the family members, again, you touched on it there, are so good. And so many people on the other side, you know, people with gambling problems will bring this up all the time in therapy that, oh, my partner was on to me even before I had the slip saying, have you been gambling? Because they could smell it. It was coming because the behavior had changed. Right. But sometimes that early warning system, because it's so kind of hyper vigilant, it can see stuff that isn't there as well, which is normal, right? That's totally normal. And the partner or the family member, the loved one is gone. What's up with you? Are you gambling where the person is just having a bad day? We can all have bad days. Right. So, and that then, the person in recovery can get frustrated with that as well. And you know, that communication bit is is extremely important in any relationship. But the, um, way back starting out, I would have done some couples counseling. I, I don't really do a whole lot. And occasionally I'd work with people through the problem gambling service where both people would come in, especially early on, that can be very useful where you get... Uh, say the person with the gambling problem and the family member or partner to come in and say well look we need to get these structures in place right and if you're the person who's having to manage the money uh, then it would need to look something like this and these are the kind of pitfalls and the problems and the challenges that can arise when that happens and of course it can often cause conflict we touched on this on episode two of the podcast in in a bit more detail but that communication bit something that would have used in couples counseling quite a bit is that theory of transactional analysis and anybody who listens to the blind boy podcast he touched on this recently he he looks at it a lot it's an interesting model around communication where this this idea that we have three basic modes of communication parent adult and child and the parent mode is this kind of finger wagging, you know, taking on the role of the parents, uh, being kind of authoritarian with a, with the other person. And the child is this kind of, you know, childlike response or to situations where we're kind of feel overwhelmed, like we can't cope. And the adult is just this kind of rational uh, way of communicating where we're just talking about the thing that's going on. We're not bringing up loads of baggage from the past. We're not projecting into the future kind of catastrophic thinking and worries and stresses we're just talking about 
the thing that's happening right now. And that can be really useful, I think, for a lot of people, especially between couples, um, to get some couples counselling as part of it, because quite often there's so much unresolved baggage in the relationship and so much broken trust in the relationship that going for couples counseling where you're not working on the gambling you know you know the you can go to a service like ourselves for something like that but just really working on the fundamentals of the relationship boiling it down to the, the basics of communication and trust and how to build up trust and what does that look like that can be extremely important i think for a lot of people i don't know what your thoughts are on that tony yeah i think it's it's very important to kind of people to work together with it i know that um <clears throat> with some of the work i do you you know the service user um would ask to bring in their partner to want you know to an early session which now i facilitate a lot i done my first one there with zoom last week which went very well because i think the the partner had got um had got support as well, but it was really good for her to sit in and kind of ask the questions while the um, the person who was had the issue with Cameron was was in the room as well, and it really <coughs> helped to gain an understanding because, again, people will have concerns about relapse. People will have concerns about the fact that you know this is for life, and that can be very overwhelming when someone hears that. Like, you know, you're you know this is gambling. This is something you have to look at for life, and that can be very um daunting at the very start so to just to explain what that looks like it's kind of it's yeah addiction is there um i i think someone one of my clients before described it brilliantly as it's lying dormant and it's the whole time it's lying dormant in me and it bubbles every so often when you might get that kind of uh mini compulsion to place a bet when you know you're you have a bit of time on a saturday afternoon you kind of miss that place and that accumulator on the saturday and it does come come up and sometimes it'll bubble more than others and at the start it's kind of just that constant um you know that fight against it and you know within me at the moment it's you know a good few years in recovery it's something that's there all the time but it's not something that's really prominent or prevalent in my life that much you know it's something that i work on and i have things in place to help me um you know whether that's kind of my supervision whether it's um, working in the area keeps me grounded um meetings whatever else works and it, what it does is it helps you know or it helps you kind of keep an eye on this it helps you you know in the background is there at any given time so it's not that it's this huge issue um as much as it was at the start it still is a huge issue you know i'm not minimizing it at all but it's for me it's something that i know it's there and i'm very aware that i can never do it again i have things in place to protect myself i have my recovery that works for me now that's not going to be the same for everyone but i think people with early recovery as well it's just so overwhelming this thought that this thing is for life as we said the fear of relapse the the, the break into the trust questioning everything that may have happened before that the, you know is ever was any of this real before this because to see the person as this completely different person i think for me at the start it was about kind of trying to separate myself from my behavior which is very difficult when your behavior affects other people because they see the whole package and I think for for the couples and to have that kind of chat with the couples and give them a, a kind of a broader understanding, it's usually a very you know generic chat around gambling, but also it gives them a chance to ask the questions with the partner there. And 
I think is really, really beneficial to kind of get some sort of work, whether it's kind of, you know, um, couples counseling that's done separate to our service or other gambling services, because it gives you, it starts that line of communication. I think that's, is so important going forward. I worked with another um, client before, and he said that he was, he was ages away from it. Um, he hadn't gambled in months. Uh, and then just, the week after we reconnected, he said that he had his first kind of real compulsion he had thought about. And what he done was like, he the compulsion came, but because of all the tools he had learned, because of all the, the things he had in place in regard to relapse prevention, he just kind of just dismissed the thought, kind of uh, rationally went to a place where he said, I don't need to gamble, I don't want to gamble. But also what he said, what he done was different than any other time he actually told his partner about. And sometimes... We have this fear that we can't tell our partners that we have this um, compulsion to gamble because maybe they'll think we're back gambling, or maybe we'll think that it's um, it's um, you know that we're we're nearly at that point of a relapse. But he said that it really helped because they had a really good discussion around it, and she was really happy that he had disclosed it because it helped her understand more and they were able to kind of pull apart and come to the conclusion that he was kind of worried about a few things coming up. And that's where the, the kind of, it wasn't that there was a visual or a, a visual cue or an environmental cue and that he saw a bookie office or saw a race. It was something a bit deeper and they were able to discuss it and really, um, to really help kind of the situation and understand the process of relapse a bit better or triggers. Yeah. And that's, you made a really good point there that a lot of our triggers are internal. It doesn't have to be, you know, seeing an ad for Cheltenham or you know getting a free bet email you know of some gambling organization or any of those things it doesn't have walking past the bookie shop it can be all the internal stuff the stressors the boredom that can be the the the, the big triggers as well and there's something as well that, that that's kind of come up a bit in terms of that communication piece that it presents challenges right because in recovery you know, if you go back to the 12-step approach, there's a lot of wisdom in, in that. You know, one of the key elements of the 12-step approach across all the addictions is that it's one day at a, one day at a time just for today, right? Which is a, a, an excellent way to approach it, right? It's a perfectly sensible way to approach it. But for the family member, they don't want to hear, I'm not going to gamble today, <laughs> naturally they want to hear i'm not going to gamble ever 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 again full stop end of story you know and if you imagine you know we both have kids if you're listening out there maybe you have kids or you you might kind of understand this analogy that if your kid keeps on taking biscuits from the cookie jar and you're wagging your finger at them going no don't ever take biscuits from the cookie jar again that's for you know fridays or whatever we can have our treats or you can't be sneaking behind my back you have to ask permission before you take uh biscuits out of the cookie jar and the kid turns around and says okay for today i won't take biscuits out of the cookie jar it's a promise right you probably wouldn't accept that you know what i mean but counterintuitively it makes perfect sense for a person in recovery to be trying to take it one day at a time right that makes absolute perfect sense. There's a reason why the 12 steps work have worked in so many different countries and cultures and populations for such a long time is that they boiled down a lot of really sensible stuff into the approach, right? But from the outside looking in, if you're a family member, 
one day at a time might not cut it for you. You know, you you're thinking, well, I'm about to get a mortgage with this person. I'm about to marry this person. Right? I'm about to make some serious lifetime commitments, have kids with this person. They are lifetime commitment type things. Uh, and the person in recovery is telling you, well, today I won't gamble. Do you know what I mean? So you could understand in terms of the communication piece, how that might cause conflict, how, might that, how that might be difficult for a family member to hear. But for a person in recovery, it makes absolute sense to approach it in that way. Obviously, the overarching goal is to never gamble again. But thinking in those terms is too overwhelming, which is why in the 12 steps and loads of other approaches, even if it's a mindfulness based approach, it's about now. It's just about the now. It's not about 10 years from now. I don't know what your thoughts are. Have you come across that? Yeah, it's it's. It is difficult because, you know, as you said, that people, family members do want assurances and it's difficult to get out. I think for my own recovery, it's it's there's a kind of mix of it. Like I, I kind of put things in place each and every day. And it's nearly like it's not that I'd sit in the morning and I'd kind of, you know, you'd, you'd put your X, Y or Z on the list. This is what I'm going to do. I have it kind of there already. It's kind of built into. And what I do is like I, I make sure that um I do kind of live one day at a time and as much as you can, because we will drift into the past, we will drift into the future. And I think that it's, I think once you start doing that and start living that and that becomes your, your life or that becomes your way of doing it. And that's with your structures of your meetings. That's with your structures of your people start to trust that he's doing what he needs to do to remain one day at a time. And I think it builds over time so that they can see, well, it is working this mantra. And it's not that it would, it's not that it kind of it's so narrow that it's just one day at a time because people start to see the bill they start i think it's maybe it's a bit simplistic just to say it's just one day at a time i think what happens is there is a trust built up that this is working and it becomes part of your life part of your week um there's a great analogy of it that i use the whole time it's like driving a car it's like if you're driving while looking in the the rear view mirror as in looking back in the past the whole time you're going to crash because you're not concentrating on on what's in front of you and if you're looking too far ahead you're not concentrating on what you're doing so it's about driving the car being present at that time glancing back to look back at the impact just to remind you and then looking a little bit forward but it's always about being very mindful of, of how you're you are in that moment I think that's the way I would kind of look at my recovery. I'm very mindful of where I am at the moment. I do look ahead a little bit, um, but I don't get stuck too far ahead. And I do, you know, at times, at various times, whether, you know, it does happen in recovery that you're looking back, whether that's a financial legacy that's there, you're looking back with resentment of I'm still paying off this loan or I'm still, you are reminded of it a lot of times. And sometimes it can be if there is financial problems and you know you can't go on that holiday this year that you usually gone on and and you know it will be you will be looking back at you know why did i do that why did i get in so much trouble and i know that my own my own story there was a lot of resentment towards myself in early recovery about i was looking at i had the good job i had it you know i had the i had everything kind of set up lovely and, and i kind of looked back and here i was facing the prison sentence, back on social welfare, and I resented the fact. So I kept looking back in the past. Why did I, how did I do this? Why did I do this? And I got stuck in that for a while and it took a while to kind of move on from that. So that was very counterproductive for my recovery, being stuck in the past. So that's where you can be. But I think it is good to glance back every so often because it does remind me of why I'm doing this, why recovery is so important. 
and also looking looking forward and having a goal or having a drive keeps me from ever drifting back into the old ways as well so it's kind of there's a i think there really is a a mixed match of everything that needs to be put in there but that kind of at the core of it if you're living one day at a time like it's you'd often hear it in the meetings i'm only one bet away from going back it doesn't matter how much time i have in recovery like i have nine years in recovery that doesn't mean i won't have a bet tomorrow it it means nothing unless i'm concentrating on that one day at a time you could be nine days in recovery if you're living one day at a time it's as important as whether you're nine years or 19 years i think a lot of what happens in early recovery as well is you want to be in the meetings for me anyway i want to be that person five years free of it i want to be that person 10 years free but i wasn't happy enough that i was two or three days free from it but it's all about the quality of life that you build around that and i think that's where we go back to communication or back working with the family and you can really build up a quality life that it can be really living in the moment i think that's what as you said in mindfulness or even you know, Zen-like life is living in that moment and um, looking a little bit forward every so often, but kind of concentrating on what's important at that time. I think if you can get that incorporated into your life, and by and large, I have it and most of the time. Like I do drift into the the old behaviors every so often, not go, not gambling-wise, but um, behaviors that I have to catch myself that would lead to a relapse, you know, whether that's um, for me. And I've, and I've spoken with this very openly. Sometimes it's kind of online shopping can, can drift back in every so often where I'm buying stuff I don't need. And these are the things that it's important to tease out. I know with my partner, we we talk about this very openly. We talk about when the old behaviors are coming back, what's going on around it. Um, and that kind of gives her an understanding of my condition, inverted commas, as I call it, jokingly, like this is a, a, you know, what we talk about. But there is parts of it that are still very much there. While I haven't gambled in nine years, there are parts of me that drift back into the that way, that old place. And if I'm constantly... Um, living in that present moment and constantly um, very aware of the impact if I did go back gambling or the impact that I, I did have when I was gambling, I can stay in that moment and kind of work through it. But isn't that's that's recovery. That's that's your ongoing recovery. For me, it's about being aware of when I'm slipping back into old ways. Um, and that's a very important part of it for me. Yeah, and that's, I suppose, family members are often conscious quite often more conscious than the person in recovery themselves that the person is slipping back into place. You know, they have that kind of early warning system built in. Uh, and quite often after people have had slips and relapses, and we might talk about that a little bit now as we, as we go into looking at boundaries because it's important to, to have realistic expectations of people's slips and relapses come up fairly often. But quite often if somebody comes back into it, counseling and they say they've had a slip or or a relapse they'll say yeah you know the my partner my family members were saying it to me days weeks beforehand you know they were asking if i've been gambling my mood had changed my behavior was changing back into old behaviors and that's quite often the the slip is in the post long before it actually happens it's a, it's a slow slide back into old ways of being old old patterns of behavior um, but just as we, I suppose we move on to boundaries, because before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about this today and the the importance of it. I mean, so many people, Tony, I'm sure you've seen this, that access treatment are doing so on the back of an ultimatum, essentially. Now, we're not trying to sell ultimatums to people as, a, as an approach, but necessarily, but that's the reality of it certainly my experience of working with people for 
a number of years around gambling addiction is that the thing that focuses people's attention is quite often some big ultimatum where it's stop gambling or leave you know stop gambling or the uh, the marriage is over get out of the house you know i'm done here you know when people family members loved ones have reached breaking point uh and that's a boundary you know that's where unfortunately you've arrived at a point where you're the the kind of ground rules the unwritten ground rules in the relationship have been broken and uh, it could be something drastic i've worked with people who have gambled the money that was put away for the wedding and you know situations like that where they're desperately trying at the last minute to win it back and only at the very very last minute does everybody everybody find out that the money for the wedding or for some big holiday or some other really important thing deposit for a house has been gambled away right and that can be the deal breaker for a lot of people in a relationship it doesn't have to be anything as drastic as that but in any relationship you know regardless of whether there's a gambling problem or any sort of an addiction there it would be really useful for all of us if day one like you move in together and you sit down and you get a piece of paper and you go these are the ground rules of this relationship and these are my deal breakers and these are your deal breakers and you stick it on the fridge and everybody knows where they're at right now nobody does that <laughs> i don't think so anyway but it would be really really useful if we all did but even if there's not a list of deal breakers stuck to the fridge door they're in they're in our heads somewhere we all have deal breakers if it's somebody the other person being unfaithful or whatever it is there's something there's a line that we all have and it's useful for the other person to know what the line is right so setting boundaries in terms of the deal breakers in your relationship with a person with a gambling problem they're useful for you and they're useful for the other person to know where they stand right so if i do x then y will happen right that's it there's a line i know where the line is and i suppose the other really important thing about boundaries will be to stick to what you've said so if you said the next time you gamble the mortgage payments i'm out of here and then don't stick to that then the person what the person learns in that situation is i can keep doing this and there are no consequences right and they've also learned that your your bite is not anywhere near what your bark is essentially you know that you're not going to stick to your guns you'll say one thing and you'll do another thing and it's very easy to say that right me sitting here <laughs> talking into a microphone saying stick to your guns you know always be congruent you know do what you say you're going to do right and stick the stick to the consequences stick to your boundaries stick to your guns very very easy to say not so easy to do when it's your adult child or when it's your partner you've been with for 20 or 30 years that maybe you have children with much more complicated to actually stick to your guns in that situation but the the received wisdom would be as much as humanly possible set out the boundaries and stick to those boundaries Tony, what are your thoughts on that? It's it's great in theory, but it is yeah. it's very hard to practice because, you know, as you just mentioned before, as 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 a father, 
and I know that I always kind of think about it well what would I, what would you know when I'm looking at my parents and and what they had to kind of go through with me kind of like that ultimatum that if you do this you are out on the street and then when it comes to doing that you are torn between that thing of putting your child out on the street because they've gambled again or because they've drank again or used drugs again and you do see that a lot or you are caught between you're trying to kind of have those boundaries which are really really important but it is so difficult in 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 reality but i do think you're you're right we do we, we know this this is where the communication comes in you have to communicate why you do not want the person to gamble how it's impacted you and for the person who has gambled to be able to hear that how it's really impacted because then that creates it creates a dialogue that, that gives a deeper understanding it can be more healing because then you might be intrinsically motivated not to do it because it will hurt the other person rather than, well, if I do do this, I'm going to be out in the street. So I think there has to be a mix in, in, in it. Um, and I, that, and I do think that's, that's the value of talking about how this has impacted me because then when you are, if you are stepping back in that way, it's very much in your head that this has had a real impact on my family. This has had a real impact on, on I really hurt these people and they verbalize that to you rather than just you know sometimes it's just about people shout at you you've done this or that but if you talk about you'd often find that if in interactions if you have a very calm conversation around how you've this has been impacted it has a lot more you know it, it, it hits you a lot more than if someone is shouting because then you're going to have that reaction back or you know that defensive reaction but if someone actually does sit down and say this is how I've been impacted by this and you have that conversation that along with I can't go through this again because of this, then that would be, you know, that would create the boundary. But also I think you do get motivated between Like I know from my own recovery, I do not want to ever go back to where I was because, um, because of a personal of how, where I was in that moment, but also how it, how it affected family and, and potentially how it's, you know, I haven't had that conversation with my daughter yet, but it's about if I did go back, it would undo, all the good work I've done. So that's my motivation is I, I don't want, I want to be able to have that conversation with her and say, yeah, I did make a mistake. It did have huge consequences and it's all there to be seen, but I've gone, I've come through and that's my, a lot of time. That's my motivation. Um, and I've set my own boundaries, I suppose as well. So I suppose it is difficult, but it's, I think it is an important aspect of it. Yeah. It's so much easier said than done. And like that back before I started, kind of specializing in the gambling side of things. I would have worked with the Family Support Network in Waterford, would have uh, volunteered with them, provided counseling to, to family members, mostly who were the parents of adults who were using heroin, right? And, you know, I worked with middle-aged mothers who were going out onto the streets of Waterford at night buying heroin for their adult children. Now, if you're listening to this going what a terrible parent what a terrible person i pray i don't believe in a god but i pray <laughs> that you never find yourself in that situation because as a parent i cannot sit in judgment on anybody who engages in what you might term enabling behaviors right so whether it's bailing out somebody with a gambling problem which again if we're going Back to the idea of boundaries the received wisdom on bailouts is that they're an absolute no-no that we sh people shouldn't be doing them at the same time it's completely understandable when family members do that right completely understandable because they're doing it from the best of intentions they don't want to see their loved one suffer 
whether it's their adult child or their partner or sibling, whoever it is. Unfortunately, that bailout is an enabling behavior and all the person really learns in that situation is I can gamble with no consequences, right? That's the unfortunate reality of it. Now, there are situations where people are going to be getting bricks through their windows or getting their tires slashed or their lives might be in danger if debts are not paid. That could extend to family members, as I often saw when working uh, with families, especially around drug use. So, again, very simple to sit here and say, don't ever bail anyone out. But again, you have to use your own discretion there if somebody's life is in danger or if your own life is in danger or if your property is going to be damaged as a result of outstanding debts. But that, again, as a rule of thumb, generally speaking, outside of those kind of extenuating circumstances, you wouldn't recommend bailing a person out because of that, the learning that goes with it. You know, Matt Gaskell, we had on last week, was talking a lot about the reinforcement uh, and you know, the, the reward systems that are in place there. So when we bail somebody out who has a gambling problem, we are rewarding the gambling addiction. We're, re we're rewarding that behavior. There are no negative consequences for the person. And that's what becomes learned. That behavior of the, the gambling addiction is just positively reinforced by the reward of the bailout. And 99.999 times out of 100, the person will learn nothing constructive and will continue gambling. But what are your thoughts on bailouts, Tony? Yeah, again, it's, it's, it's a really tough one because a lot of times um, the family, when it comes to gambling, the family will bail out the person because of the stigma, because of the because of the embarrassment of the family, because it might, you know, it might be the fact if they didn't, there's going to be um, ramifications in regard to, you know, maybe being charged or sentenced or so it, a lot of times, you know, it can reinforce that behavior that there is no consequences. It, and um, or. I know that even when I was gambling, when, you know, when you got that bet that got you out of trouble, you know, there was lots of times at the start of it where you might get that bet to get you that money back in the last, in the last race, or that's the reinforcement. I'm going to get away with this. I've got away with this again. And what usually happens is even after a bailout, um, and if the gambling does continue, you will run out of, you will run out of luck for the want of a better word, because what happens is the, it just builds and builds and builds and because you because you're after getting away with it as such in commas again it's it drives that behavior that you know or my, my luck is in my I'm, I'm just that one win away from it or you know and, and that's a lot of the reinforcement behavior that i would have experienced with the gambling you, you you get out of jail that time you know you get especially you know the story about the wedding where you get that bet up that that gets you out of trouble with the the horse winning to be able to pay for it and that reinforces that idea that you're nearly bulletproof. And then if you do go through this and then if, and then the family members put up the money, you will find a lot of times that it's, it's it continues and it gets worse. And then the person gets even more trouble because it is progressive. You keep gambling more and more. And I've worked with numerous people where that's been the case. And unfortunately, the person then has to, at, at that stage, then they have to put the boundaries in because they physically can't cope with this anymore. They can't keep bailing the person out because they don't have the means to do it and they have to cut those ties so as you were saying maybe at the start if there was consequences albeit you know a serious enough consequences they mightn't be as serious as the consequences down the line for if they didn't bail them out in the first place so it is again it's a very gray area around it as well um, and i think it has to be 
you know, if we do if we do these, if we do bail out the person or if we do help the person, there has to be um there has to be things put in place. There has to be concrete things put in place to um to support the person, but also, you know, there has to be nearly um you know conditions with that as well. Um and a lot of times what will happen is that the conditions are put in place, you know, whether the person's going to pay back the money or whether it's going to be to seek treatment. But then I think um, Professor Colin O'Gara talks about that middle recovery bit where everyone's eyes are taken off to everything. So it's kind of, uh, it's six or seven months in or whatever time it's in and people stop looking after the money. The, the repayments of that loan maybe stop being paid into the bank. And that's when you know that the old behaviors are back. And that's when I suppose then that goes back to what we initially talked about, about having things in place to recognize when the person might be slipping back in and whether that's the family member recognizing or the person themselves. Like when I'm working with people as well, I do a little bit around emotion regulation where you kind of where you do recognize when you're slipping back into old ways. You kind of you nearly put a figure on how I'm feeling today. And if I'm not feeling as good, what's going on and you kind of break it down. There's a bit of CBT in there as well and other things in there. So I think it's about it's about really recognizing that as well. Like, you know, like I had huge consequences for my gambling and in ways I'm glad that I, you know, that I had to go to prison because it's, it really reinforced me that I never want to ever go back to this place. If I had gotten away with a suspended sentence or if I had been bailed of money at any stage and, you know, it might've, it might've had that impact me all. I'm after getting away with this again, as I had previous times in my gambling kind of history. So it is, it's, as I say, it's a very gray area, but it's something that has to be individual in the same way as recovery a lot of times it's individual and how people manage that money or the finances is individual to the couples or the, the families as well but it's as you said there are rules of thumb out there and it's about this is what the theory would say but then it's about kind of working with it into practice then as well yeah i like that it is a very gray area and i don't sit in judgment on anyone who does that i completely understand the motivations behind it um and that thing of i suppose if you're bailing somebody out that definitely there should be some conditions with it so i mean if, if you can get anything positive out of that bailout it should be that before the person gets the bailout they self-exclude from any bookie shops that they go to and you go along with them and support them in that process they self-exclude from online sites they put blocking software on all devices that they have access to and they hand over financial control to a trusted person or presumably possibly the person who's given them the bailout in the first place. And if they agree to all those conditions and to get into treatment, be it attending Gamblers Anonymous meetings or treatment in the community or residential treatment, if they agree to all of those conditions and put all those things in place first, then maybe they get the bailout, right? So I suppose you can use it as an opportunity to, and, and kind of leverage that for want of a better word um to help the person to recover from the gambling problem um we're coming close to the end of the time but there's one other really important thing for family members and it's the idea of self-care and again we touched on it earlier on getting counseling for yourself whether it's through a service like ourselves or um counseling and primary care service which your GP will be able to refer you into that that goes across the country. Medical card holders uh, can access counseling for free through that. There are numerous, uh, countless, I think, uh, free and low cost counseling services around the country, especially in the family resource centers. There's a great one in Waterford and St. Bridget's that I would have volunteered with years ago. They're 
many, many, many opportunities to get help for yourself um, and to support you through this process because quite often family members will do anything in their power to help the person with the gambling problem, and uh, which is completely understandable. You care about the person, you love the person. But there's that old analogy, maybe it's a bit cheesy now, but it's true, the idea of, you know, when they're given the information on an airplane, they're saying if the oxygen mask come down and you've got kids with you, put your own mask on first, right? Not your kids' masks. Right? And the logic behind that being that if you put on your kids' masks first, you could pass out before you get the chance to put the masks on all of your kids, right? So you put your own mask on first or... You know, if it's trying to save somebody who's drowning, you know, and you go out there, you know, you see it all the time. Unfortunately, there's a tragic case only this week in Ireland of two very competent swimmers, uh, I think up in Tipperary, diving in a, in a quarry. And one brother went out to save the other. Tragically, both of them drowned. You know, this this idea that you have to be in a good, safe and secure place to help the person that you want to help. Right. And that needs to be your starting point, not the not the thing that you do after you help the, the other person. So, I mean, can't hammer that home strongly enough. It's huge and it goes kind of counter to everybody's instincts uh, to do it that way. But it's unbelievably important. What are, what are your thoughts on that, Tony? Yeah, and it is so important. But a lot of times, it's again you, you look at stigma sometimes that is associated about seeking help and counselling. Like, why should I go get counselling for this? I'm not the one with the problem. But it, I think it's about maybe it's a, a misrepresentation of what counselling is. Even if it was just going to have a space where you can just let go and rant for an hour, that's what it is. It's your hour. It's and it's important to have that space to kind of because what that will do is you'll start processing, and that's what counselling is. Is a space where where you can process what's going on and for for someone to um have that space is really important because then it allows the person to work through their side of the of the family you know let get their side of the recovery because the person the family members are in recovery as well a lot of the time and like you know like the, some of the family members that i'm working with at the moment you really seem to be benefiting from just having a space where they can just talk about it and to someone who's not connected to it and someone who doesn't judge and someone who's empathic and congruent and all those stuff. So it's, I think that's a very important part of it. But a lot of times it's kind of, why should I get the support? I don't have the problem. Um, but it's not, it's just about having a space to kind of work through it or help yourself work through which, what is a very stressful uh, time for anyone that's going through it, a family member's going through it as well, because there's a, as I said, there's there's a range of emotions going on there, um, and it does help you to kind of work through those, and then that will help in turn the person who has the issue because you'll be able to be work collaboratively together to get to the place where recovery is is good. Yeah, and I suppose just finally on that because we're coming up to the hour mark now, really important to mention that there are gammonon meetings, which are meetings for family and friends. Uh, similar to the Gamblers Anonymous, but separate and distinct from Gamblers Anonymous. Details of Gammonon meetings are on uh, gamblersanonymous.ie on the website there. Unfortunately, there aren't nearly enough Gammonon meetings yet. Um, I think there might be 
10 maybe 12 on the whole island of ireland so definitely we need more kind of family support meetings and maybe uh, down the line that's something we might try and facilitate ourselves even if it's an, in an online forum uh, also the rise foundation uh, provides supports for family members affected by any type of addiction uh, and they do brilliant work too um so finally on that uh, we have a lot of information on our page as well for our family members and i suppose the the number one take home maybe from this episode will be take care of yourself you know you're if you have somebody in your life with a gambling problem it's extremely stressful it may be having a negative impact on your finances um you know it could be a major breaches of trust in the relationship there's a lot of stuff there going on for you uh and it's like tony said even if it's just a thing of whether it's in a group meeting like gammon or in a one-to-one space where you block off time for yourself. It doesn't even have to be talk therapy. It could be something like reflexology, you know, where you don't even have to talk about the issue, but you're getting some time for yourself, blocking off that self-care time because you're you're going through the mill or most of the people that we would work with, the family members, are going through a lot. So take that time for yourself. Extremely important. And then you can... It puts you in a better position to support the person that you want to support. Any th- final thoughts, Tony? No, I think that sums it up really, really well. <laughs> Thanks. All right, folks, that's it for this week's episode. Uh, next week, uh, we'll be going a bit political because it will be on the Wednesday, which is when we uh, record and upload the, the podcast. It will be the seven-year anniversary of the uh, Gambling Control Bill being published it still has not been enacted so i'll be doing a bit of a rant on that. um and if you are a family member or anybody listening to this podcast who has an interest in it and wants to see changes put in place protections put in place to protect vulnerable people contact your local td especially if they're a minister get on their case uh, we need to get that legislation and that regulation in place asap All right. Thanks a million. Uh, Tune in next time. See you, Tony. Thanks, Barry. If you would like to support this podcast, as well as our frontline treatment, prevention and helpline services, please consider donating €5 per month using the link in the episode description. Thank you.